In improvisational theater, there is an adage that says, make your partner look good. In leadership and business relationships, this means you can make personal interactions a win-win situation for both you and your colleagues. Welcome to Partner Up with Amy Carroll, speaking with guests and listeners like you. Amy uses her wisdom and wit leading you along the road to success. Now, here is your host, Amy Carroll. Welcome everyone to Partner Up with Amy Carroll. As a communication coach, trainer, speaker, and author, I'm delighted to be your host and excited to bring you insights and ideas to help you solve your communication conundrums. This is the 36th episode of my show, Partner Up with Amy Carroll. If you want to find out more about me or what the show's about, feel free to listen to previous episodes on my website, carolcoaching.com, or go to the voiceamerica.com business channel and be sure down, to download the app, or you can tune in with any of your favorite podcast apps. I have a question for you listeners. Would you like more joy and freedom in your relationships? If so, be sure to check out last week's show. I interviewed Dr. Yvette Erasmus, who offered insights and practical steps for getting free from dysfunctional power struggles, increasing self-awareness, and opening up to a world of connection. Today, my guest is Scott Tilma. Welcome, Scott. Hi, Amy. It's great to be with you. Yeah, I am delighted to have this conversation. I'm really, I've been looking forward to it. And, you know, Scott, the first time I got to know you was actually before we met on Zoom, which was when I watched your TEDx talk many, how many Perfect. years ago was it made? That was uh, at the end of 2016. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So, it was a while ago. It was. And so then you can imagine how delighted I was when our mutual friend, Natasha Konstantinova, connected us. So that's yes, very it's great, cool. It's great to be connected with you. And um, I know a few of uh, your previous guests that you've had on your show, notably George Colreiser. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Listeners, you're going to want to check out that episode. I think it's back from in January sometime. That was a fabulous interview with George. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Scott, let me tell the listeners a bit about you so they know who I'm speaking with today. So, Lieutenant Scott Tillema is a crisis communication specialist. He is a full-time police officer and an FBI-trained hostage negotiator from the Chicago area. Spending over seven years as a negotiator with one of the largest multi-jurisdictional SWAT teams in the U.S., Oh my God, I got that word out, jurisdictional, without I'm stuttering. I'm so impressed with myself. <laughs> I was rehearsing that one. <laughs> Having presented to thousands of negotiators in and outside the police force across the United States and Europe, Scott's a nationally recognized speaker, specifically in the field of crisis and hostage negotiations. And his TEDx talk, which I mentioned earlier, is called The Secrets of Hostage Negotiators. And folks, it has been viewed over a million times. So you're absolutely going to want to check that out. Educationally, Scott holds a bachelor's degree in behavioral science and a master's degree in psychology. Additionally, he received a negotiation training at Harvard University. And Scott is a senior associate with the Negotiations Collective in Canada a faculty member with the Schreiner Negotiation Institute in Switzerland and a professional speaker with Big Speak Speakers Bureau in the U.S. Whew. And Scott, here's the thing that I find funny. Having listened to your TEDx talk, I remember you saying that you're not a naturally good communicator. 
And this really surprises me. Right. And like all skills, it's a skill that you need to develop. And I would have never guessed when I think back to my time in high school or maybe even before that, that I would be a professional speaker, that I would be communicating and speaking to thousands of people in person or virtually around the world. There would be no chance that that could ever be a career or a field that I could find success in. But like everything else, a little uh, coaching, like the work you are doing, training, uh, getting that feedback and practice. That's how we become a little bit better at the things that we want to do. It's true. And when you were talking, it just made me think of, so I started my business in 2000. In 2004, a colleague who I'm actually going to be interviewing in a couple weeks, Katrina, Katrina said to me, Amy, you and I should present together on stage together at this upcoming conference. And I remember literally punching her in the arm, not, not like hard, aggressive, just a, a punch in your arm, which was the followed by, are you crazy? No way. Yeah. And now I couldn't imagine my life without being on the stage and speaking and also performing. It gives me so much joy. So it's so interesting how we have these I think what some people call limiting beliefs, we can't always imagine where our futures will lead us or the big things that we can be doing in the world. So I think it's, I don't know what the lesson is in that yet, though, I guess be open to bold ideas and bold possibilities for your life. That's it. And and enjoy the process. Each step will lead to something else. I tell people that I became a better communicator because I played the drums. And way back when, I was very shy. I was um, not at all interested in, in being in the spotlight. But as a musician, you learn to perform. And you learn to perform in front of people. And you have to be pretty good at that. And that brings in the concepts of practicing and preparation for that moment. And each one of these things has really been impactful and helped me become uh, a professional within the communications field. So when you were, what age did you start playing the drums? I started playing the drums in sixth grade. I was, uh, I took piano lessons when I began uh, first grade and I wasn't very good at reading all that music. So I think they just said, (laughs) can you bang on this one thing right here? I said, this is way easier. So I I became uh, a drummer at an early age and I I loved that. And I played all the way through school at the University of Wisconsin and had a great time. And Unfortunately, I didn't have any superstar musical friends. Otherwise, I'd be in uh, a band performing around the world. <laughs> so here's my question. When you first started performing, maybe you, if you can remember back then, the first time you were in front of an audience, were you about 12 years old? We had a, a piano recital when I was much younger than that. Oh, okay. And the first audience every year, our, our piano instructor would have a recital for all of her students, and right. it would be at the local retirement home. So most of uh, my, my initial audience was probably 85 and up, <laughs> and, and they couldn't have been more pleased to have these young students bring music and joy to their life. So it probably helped that I had a, a very encouraging audience from a Absolutely. From and I don't think I've ever shared that story publicly, so credit <laughs> to you for being a great interviewer. <laughs> Well, here's what I'm curious about. At any point, were, did you ever find yourself feeling nervous in front of the audience? Always. 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 Okay. All and right. So I think that that's what helps us perform better. 
Well, here's my theory. You were constantly confronting your fears. You were scared and you did it anyway. And you kept doing it. And what a thing I notice is that when people do things that they're scared of, what that does is it builds our confidence. And that confidence is transferable to other areas in our lives. So I suspect that at a young age, you started building your confidence being in front of audiences, which then allowed you to uh, take on that next bold step of communicating directly to your audiences. Yeah. And what a, what a great lesson. I like how you put that because without facing our fears, we're going to be in trouble. And I, I look back at all my, my big accomplishments where I can say, you know, this was really a, a big moment for me. And in each one of those things, I think if I had the chance at that moment to say, you know what, I'm not going to do this. I would have really considered saying, nope, no, thank you. I, I don't want to do a drum solo in front of 10,000 people watching me sit down and play a drum set. I don't really want to do a TED Talk in front of hundreds of people in a live audience and potentially millions of people around the world. And I think this, this fear of failure, we, we question ourselves and say, yeah. you know what, I, I don't want to be laughed at. I don't want to be embarrassed. I, I, I would rather just have that protection of not being out there. Yeah. And that I think is an important piece in communication when we're connecting with somebody else to say, this person does not want to be embarrassed. This person yeah. does not want to be judged. So let's be thoughtful of others. And we can do that effectively when we look back and have those moments in our lives where we say, I've been there and I've <laughs> taken that step. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. So Scott, here's my first official question for you. Um, Knowing you the bit I do, I assume you have a mission. I'd like to hear. Okay, good. Because <laughs> otherwise, this mission? would have been a very short question. What right. is and it? it? And then how? I want to know how you live it out. So tell me both of those things. So it's, it's, it's very simple. My mission is to inspire police officers to be great negotiators. And depending on my context, maybe it's inspire people from all backgrounds to be great negotiators. But because I work in the law enforcement uh, industry, I am very focused on teaching police officers the basics of crisis communication, because I think that especially in this era, at this time, this is one of the most important skills that people in law enforcement need to have because truly we're dealing with life or death situations. So because I'm involved in so many things, I don't always have the time to go deep and spend weeks and weeks working with people. So I say I want to inspire them to be great negotiators. So to get them off to a start. And Mm -hmm. how I live that is I know that Um, budgets are tight. All of us have taken an economic hit in the last year or so. So I want to live my mission by getting out there and offering this training to police officers across the country for free. I have a published speaking fee um, through my, uh, uh, through Big Speak Speakers Bureau for police officers. I waive that fee entirely. And some seminars I will do for completely for free, for no cost at all. And I've done that in the Boston area. I'm doing that up in Wisconsin. I'm doing that in Colorado coming up. So there are opportunities for those in law enforcement, exclusively for those in law enforcement, to learn for no cost at all, because I believe that this is a life-saving skill that they need to have. 
Yeah. Life-saving skill for themselves and others. Absolutely. Wow. Okay. Yeah, it's cool because I could feel I was getting goosebumps as you were talking. So I can see this truly is your passion and your mission. Excellent. So I'm assuming you have some kind of framework or model that you use to teach this to people. Sure. And it's so important to have this framework because as you and I sit here and have a conversation, we feel fairly relaxed. As people are are listening in their car or on their couch, they're fairly relaxed. And when we're relaxed, we can think and we can be creative and we have lots of good ideas. But crisis communication doesn't happen in that situation. And maybe we can come back to that uh, in a little bit. Because once you add stress, things change a little bit. And what our mind does, it it goes into self-preservation. We have to protect ourselves because we're under the stress of the moment. So I feel it's so critical that negotiators have something that they can see in their mind, uh, a mental model to help them through that. And the FBI teaches the behavioral change staircase and it's five steps and it's not a classified thing or anything like that. Anyone can go online and check that out. But I see. So so I'm going to interrupt you a second. And you're um, you're spouting out so much rich information. I want to slow this down and ask you to repeat the FBI model. What's it called again? Yeah, the FBI behavioral change staircase model or stairway model. Okay. And what the FBI teaches is it's five steps with active listening, empathy, rapport, influence, and behavioral change, and talks about how we get from where we are to where we want to go. Yeah. And um, I'm lucky that I'm invited to teach with the FBI when they put on their classes in the Chicago area. So I won't ever speak ill of the FBI and what they teach. However, when I train negotiators outside of the FBI, I probably shouldn't be teaching their model, although most police negotiators are familiar or should be familiar with that. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with that. I just see it. I visualize it a little bit differently. Okay. Instead of of stairs. And, And the issue that I have with stairs is when we are working with high performers, the, the, the super A personalities. And I say, you're at the bottom stair and your goal is to get to the top of the stairs. What's going to happen? We're going to rush. We're going to skip steps because mm. we're used to, I get to the finish line quickly, efficiently, and I'm getting the job done. Yeah. And there is no race in communication and crisis communication. We really need to build that relationship. So when I teach it, I teach it more of a bond and I see it as a circle rather than a staircase. And my bond has four important principles that are working together in concert. And these four principles should be familiar to most professionals and most people who have been around, but nobody teaches them working together in this framework um, like I do. And the way that I teach that is we're going to be hitting on these four principles over and over. And throughout this conversation or throughout this uh, communication or negotiation, by continuously working on these principles, what we're doing is we're building a bond. And that's what that circle represents. And your goal is to build a bond. Your goal is not to sell more stuff or to get somebody to agree or convince someone to drop the gun. That's not our goal. Our goal is to build that bond. And once we have that bond, we have influence. Let me ask you to define what you mean by the word bond for listeners. Yeah, this is the the connection, the, the relationship that we need to have. We don't listen to strangers and value their opinion. And and maybe this is a, another topic we can get into later in this discussion that especially now in 
2021, mm. we've been through this year of isolation where we've been yeah. away from work. We've been away from family and friends. And what we need is that connection. And without that human connection, most of us really start to struggle. And, yeah. and we, we're, we're challenged to get through this alone. And sometimes it feels too much for us to get through life on our own, without that support, without that intimacy. And that's what we need to build is that relationship. So your model, your framework is constantly, uh, as you say, it's a circle, it's to reinforce the bonding. Correct. We're going around and around. And and my principles, I, I break them down to one word because again, under stress, we have trouble processing complex ideas. And as the person who has been the primary negotiator, the person who's been on the phone, it's it's tough to see a a big drawn out process and figure out here's where I need to go. Just very simply, what do I need to be doing next? And these four words, these four concepts are understanding, timing, delivery, and respect. Okay. So understanding, understanding, timing, timing, delivery, and respect. Respect. And I think that this is why I was so excited to connect with you. In your book, The Ego Tango, you tell all these different stories uh, of these interactions you've had. And one that sticks out in my mind was at the Montreux uh, Jazz Festival when oh, yeah. you had confronted the uh, the intoxicated individual who was making a mess and knocking over some, some jewelry, if I recall. Yes. As you were working to diffuse that situation, you talk about you were thoughtful on your delivery and Mm. how you were saying what you were saying. You were being mindful of showing respect to the person and not embarrassing them Mm -hmm. and really helping them save face. And each one of those things, although you're doing it in an entirely different situation than how I apply it, Mm. it's exactly the same because we're dealing with people. So here, I want to make a confession because you made me sound really good when you gave that uh, overview of the story. The truth is, I wanted to slap that guy silly. <laughs> he was being so obnoxious and so disrespectful from my perspective. And and I could feel my inner predator just coming to the surface. And I knew that wasn't going to get me what I wanted. And so I was able to tame the inner predator and hold it at bay and then do these behaviors that would communicate the respect, et cetera. So um, I, the question I have for you is, as a negotiator, are there times when you're feeling how you're feeling inside and how you're responding outside, it, there's that mismatch because maybe you be, you're scared or maybe you're really um, angry or, or you're really revved up with adrenaline or something? I think this is the one piece that in a negotiation, like in a a prolonged negotiation that um, police negotiators are quite good at because this is what we train for. And Uh this is getting out of our own way Uh to say, I'm not going to let my ego get in the way that these people are highly trained. A lot in like the stress inoculation that I'm I'm used to this stress. I know where um, I need to be and I know where I can't go. And that's where a lot of the training focuses on controlling yourself. We can't really control the other person or the other party, right. but we can't control ourselves. And with new officers and new negotiators, we find it really easy to trigger them and get at them and get them to respond. And as soon as we get 
people starting to react to what we're doing, they've lost control of that conversation. They're right. out of the driver's seat and that becomes a real problem. And it shows the other person that pressure works. And yep. we don't yep. want that at all because now it's going to continue and be more and bigger uh, issues and problems. So we want to let them know, hey, I'm in control of myself. I'm in control of at least what's happening here. Yeah. And that, that's going to help find better success as we continue. So what's one example of one way that you build that ability to move from reacting to responding? I think sometimes it's nothing more than just taking a moment. Mm. And know that my job here is to be a good listener. And w- that's why we, we, we begin with understanding. It's not about me. It's not just like what you said. I wanted to smack that guy. It's not about what I want. I want to be completely focused on you. So mm-hmm. what would be a good follow-up question? How can I understand this further? How can I better see your perspective? Because at the end, it's not about what I think or what I feel. It's about getting to an agreement and getting to a resolution. So right. what is the purpose here? What is the purpose of this conversation? And it's not so I can be heard. And in social media now, it's really a, a negative reinforcement. It's, it's backwards because everybody mm-hmm. wants to say what they want to say. Mm-hmm. And Twitter's just a mess. Nobody's on there to listen and learn. Everybody just wants to let the world know, here's what I believe. Right. We become bad right. listeners. Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. So this idea of raising awareness of where is my focus? Is my focus internal on what I want to achieve? Or is it focused on external on the other person? So do you have like specific exercises that you do with the rookie cops to help them build that muscle? Sure. What we're trying to get them to do is uh, we begin with the eight skills of active listening. And again, this isn't super secret, anything. Anybody can go and Google the eight skills of active listening. And unfortunately, we don't have time to get into all of them right here. Right. But I think two most important ones that are really the go-tos that I challenge these young folks to use. Um, I like emotion labeling. So when someone gets really angry and they're getting loud and in your face, we want to respond and protect ourselves and defend and show, you know, I've you can't do this to me. But instead of responding to the words and the content, we respond to the emotion. You sound very angry. You sound very upset. And when people feel that someone else can understand their emotion and how they're feeling, Mm -hmm. that's the beginning of a really, really deep connection. Mm -hmm. And the second piece is asking good open-ended questions, which is going to elicit information. Mm-hmm. Some, some of your listeners may be saying, hey, we're in the business world. This isn't about, you know, relationships and connection and emotional stuff. By doing this, you are getting information from people. And I believe that your power in negotiation comes from information and options. And as we keep them talking and as we keep observing and paying attention, you are building out those information and options, which is going to make you a very, very powerful negotiator. Mm, Okay, got that. So um, we're going to be heading to a break shortly. And before we do, Scott, I want to ask you, you you mentioned about uh, the challenges we've had in 2020 and 2021. And I'm wondering if you have, if your approach to negotiating has changed due to the last year we've all lived through. 
I don't know that it has changed, but it has reinforced for me the importance of bonding. And mm -hmm. I began to study uh, George Colreaser. I mentioned him earlier, and he really, as a negotiator and a psychologist and a professor of leadership, he talks about the importance of bonding. And above most other books I've read and, and people I've studied under, that really stuck with me. And that's what we're seeing eroding during this time of isolation that we've lost that bond. And all of us, every one of us, everybody that's listening out there has experienced some kind of stress or anxiety or loss or trauma in the last year. Everyone has experienced that because it's been such a change. And this reinforces the need for support and having that network and that intimacy yeah. that we have lost that just can't be replaced by Zoom or, or by these virtual sessions. Yeah. The book that's George's second book, the one that's Dare to Care hmm. is the title of that one for listeners. So you can check that out. So, um, Scott, we're going to take a break here. And listeners, if you want to find out more about Scott, you can find him in a couple of places on his website, scotttillema.com. And that's S-C-O-T-T-T-I-L-L-E-M-A.com or negotiationscollective.com. You can also go to Big Speak and do a search for Scott, or you can also find him on LinkedIn. Now, when we come back from break, we're going to be hearing more from Scott about why some negotiators have trouble finding success. Stay tuned. You're listening to Partner Up with Amy Carroll on the Voice America Business Channel. Do you have colleagues, family members, or neighbors that just drive you crazy sometimes? Do you occasionally find yourself feeling disrespected, mistreated, or annoyed by others? As a no-nonsense communication coach, trainer, speaker, and author, Amy Carroll may have a solution for you. For over 35 years, Amy has studied status and power dynamics, what sabotages relationships, results, and how to get desired outcomes in business and personal interactions. Make Your Partner Look Good is a philosophy from improvisational theater, as well as Amy's favorite mantra. For the last 20 years, she has been using her superhero powers to inspire individuals and multinationals around the globe to transform their communication and tap into their own partner powers. With concrete behavior changes in voice, body language, words, and attitude, Amy shows clients what to keep and what to change to get more out of what you want more often with less hassle. Visit carolcoaching.com today. That's C-A-R-R-O-L-L coaching.com. You are listening to Partner Up with Amy Carroll. We want participation from you. Send an email with questions or comments or to share your own interpersonal communication dilemmas to amy at carolcoaching.com. That's amy at carolcoaching.com. Now, back to Partner Up with Amy Carroll. Here again is Amy. Welcome back to Partner Up with Amy Carroll. My guest today is Scott Tillema, and we've been discussing his background as a negotiator and talking about the framework that he teaches 
uh, police officers and civilians. So, Scott, I want to jump back into this. And I know that you had said to me that there are some negotiators who have trouble finding success. So tell me about those folks. One of the biggest challenges in negotiation is ego. And it's us getting in our own way. And I think that the most successful negotiations are being done by a team. And although there may only be one person in front leading that or having those discussions, at least in my world, there's probably eight of us behind the scenes that are working to support that negotiation, coming up with information, uh, being good listeners, communicating that out to other members of the broader team that Teamwork is really, really critical, and we stumble when we say, I don't need any help. I'm the only person that can do this. Just let me handle it. Our ego sometimes gets in our own way. So the more that we can emphasize the need for a team, having a diverse team with different experiences and different perspectives, I think this is the best way to find success. Hmm. So um, it, it, it's that sense that ego. Yeah, well, I can totally imagine that they're really wanting. It's also they're wanting to prove themselves. They're wanting to win. They're wanting to um, sort they almost probably see it as a competitive uh, exchange. I'm going to win over this guy or this woman. Right. And that may be one of the biggest misconceptions when we get into communication and negotiation that it's me against you. And I think that that's a very low level idea of what a negotiation is or what it could be, Mm. because truly I want us to be working together. And the first time I heard the phrase negotiation partner, I said, what, what are you talking about? This person is not my partner. I am going to, you know, it's me against them. And I think that it was a bit of an immature understanding. And, and the credit on this goes um, to Matthias Schroner. And I work with the Schroner Negotiation Institute. And he says that this is your negotiation partner. Beautiful. And it's, it's really a, a different way. And um, the Harvard program on negotiation, uh, William Urey talks about this. And in his books, is standing shoulder to shoulder. And the concept is, if we can work together, now we can get something more than we had before. And maybe in business negotiations, this is a little bit more applicable than to crisis negotiations. There, there isn't a whole lot to build from. But the concept is the same, that as soon as we can change the mindset that it's not me against you, that I become a trusted advisor working with this person, part of that comes from the relationship development that we can change that vision that it's a competition to more of a collaboration. Mm. And I love working with professional negotiators who understand that, who can explore, here's where we can find value. Here's where we can become bigger together rather than I'm just taking this for me and you're stuck with whatever's left. Yeah, yeah. And I can feel the sense of there's a little bit of an improvisational attitude because when you're performing improv, it's about you and the other person um, there to make each other look good. And yeah. if, if I go in with a me against them, oh, that's, that's going to be a disaster waiting to happen. 
Right. I was doing uh, a coaching session. Someone, a uh, young lady from the UK had reached out to me and said, hey, could you help me? I, I want to be a better speaker. And I suggested, I said, how about doing improv? How about attending a Toastmasters where you just have to go up and here's your topic and you're doing this or you're working with somebody else that's unscripted. That's going to, it, it becomes more of a game and it yeah. becomes fun. And yeah. we're supporting each other in that conversation. And then you find the joy in that and you see the challenge as an opportunity rather than something that I need to fear and shy away from. Earlier, when you were talking about the rookie cops who are so easy to trigger and get reactions out of them, it made me think of this improv game, which I don't know what the name of it is. Um, Let's call it um, He Who Laughs First (laughs) Loses. I just made that up. But I don't know what it's called. And what I'm it is. terrible is, at that game, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so you stand in the middle and you're surrounded by your improv buddies and their job is to do pretty much anything to get you to crack a smile, to giggle and to what we call break character or another way of saying it is corpse. And it's like, you know, because when you're watching a, a scene and then, the de- you know, there's a dead guy in the ground and somebody says something funny and the dead guy starts laughing, <laughs> that's called corpsing. Nice. And so um, even though it's perhaps not exactly the same approach, you're still helping, you're helping the actor build the muscle of staying in character and not breaking their character. Um, and I wonder if that could be a, like a light and playful approach that you would use with rookie cops. Um, you know, it's, it's not the, it, it's the flip side of getting a negative reaction out of them, though it's still showing them they've got to hold it together and control their, their mindset and not break character of the calm, cool cop. Of course. And, and for, for all of us, and especially young people, because it's a new skill. But, but most of us, even, even though I'm not as young as I used to be, we all need work on this because yeah. we want to break our character and lose that focus and just have that outburst to relieve some of that stress. And some of that is just the acknowledgement of, I, I know that there's pressure building and I need to be able to just stay focused on, on yeah. what it is we're doing. What's the yeah. reason that we're here is to build each other up to help you perform better. And this is how we're going to find success, staying focused on the reason that we're here. So Scott, my challenge to you is the next time you do a police training that you somehow find a a way to weave in the exercise, he who laughs first. (laughs) I will see if we can record that and we'll send that over to you with with the acknowledgement of, of your contribution to that session. Thank you. Excellent. Okay, good. And I wish I could give credit to the person who created that game. I don't even know who did. So, all right. Next question I have for you then is what is the biggest misconception people have about police negotiation and de-escalation? I, I think that, well, first of all, what, what we had mentioned is that it's me against you that, that we're fighting. But a lot of people believe that this is a magical thing that you can just do to somebody, especially with de-escalation. Everybody wants um, de-escalation, which is very good. We, we want to have peace, and I hope that in society we continue to be against violence, and that's a problem for us. And I think the biggest misconception with de-escalation is it's something that we do to someone, that I just de-escalated you, I, I waved mm. my wand or just made it happen. 
And I think that for de-escalation to really be successful is um, the other person has to agree that this is something I'm going to do. And number two, they have to be a participant in it. That I can't de-escalate someone that doesn't want to be de-escalated, regardless of being trained by the FBI at Harvard, having read some books, knowing some pretty important people. Yeah. You have the knowledge, you have the skill, but sometimes it's not possible because the person we're working with isn't participating or won't agree to participate. So for as many situations as we may see on TV or or the videos that we see, we say, I, I wish they had de-escalated that. Um, some some people just refuse to allow that to happen. But also the the timing is a big piece of this, that if you give me some time, I can really go to work and I can get comfortable and get settled in my groove and really make a difference. But a lot of times these situations, at least in my field, are happening fast, boom, and it's right. over, just like that. That doesn't really give us an opportunity to de-escalate or negotiate, even though we may want to, the situation drives that. So mm-hmm. I think that expanding that concept more broadly into business negotiations or, or beyond law enforcement, in your conversations, in your negotiations, let's slow it down a little bit. Mm. Let's really take that time for exploration. Beautiful. Let's not rush to an agreement because I, I want to get this job done. Is there more value here? Is there potential for a longer, more deeper partnership moving on? A lot of these are not the one and dones. A lot of the business transactions that I've done as a speaker or in coaching where I think, all right, well, this is just a, a one-time deal. I have really gone on to have great legs and, and uh, have led to some terrific things. And what you were just starting to say say is leading me to my next question about um, what is an important lesson for people to take into real negotiations? Yeah, and I touched on this earlier, and I think this is so important, that stress changes everything. Right. That we perform differently when the pressure is on and when there is stress. And in my situations, this could be life or death. I mean, truly life or death situations if we don't get it right. So there's always pressure there. There's always stress. And I remember from my first negotiation, the very first time that I was on the phone, how stressful that was that you have all this complex thinking and now it's gone because you realize, you know, everybody's watching you. You you are the person in control of this. And I think maybe if, if I could throw a question to you, you know, what advice do you have or what techniques do you have mm. for communicating in these very stressful situations? I would love to take something back to, to my field from you. Oh, cool. Okay. All right. Let me think about this. A couple of things. The basics. Make sure you've recently been fed and watered. Yes, I love right? it. So just so, you know, getting the, 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 making sure your body is as optimal as it can be. You might have had a very bad night's sleep, so there's nothing you can do there. Though at least you can check you've been fed and watered. Uh, dare to ask for what you want, what you need. Whether it's, um, would you guys be willing to um, have your conversation elsewhere so I can concentrate on this conversation. Who knows? Also, the thing that people, and I'm sure you know this, Scott, tell me your thoughts. A a lot of people think 
oh, I can um, tell me intellectually what I need to do, and then I'll be able to go do it. And unfortunately, that is not how the body works. The body needs the muscle memory. So here's an example. On my website, I don't know if, if you happen to see this video. I would love for you to watch it and tell me what you think. I made a video. It's about, I think, 11 minutes long of how to neutralize a verbal aggressor. And, um, and I have somebody, it, it's, somebody's yelling at me. And even though it's a role play, it still manages, manages to have a physical reaction within my body. And so I show on the video how I handle it, how I turn, what I do with my hand, what I do with my eyes, my face, my, um, my words or lack of words. And then I break it down afterwards. So the idea is if you don't practice over and 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 over how to control your body and your facial expressions and the words coming out of your mouth, there's very little possibility that you'll be successful in a high stress situation. Oh, for sure. So tell me your, how how does that land for you? Spot on. And this is what I'm teaching about negotiating in 2021. Mm. Historically, when police do negotiations, it's it's by phone. That's how we do it. But Mm. now we've evolved where most of the world is comfortable jumping on a Zoom call. And it's not unusual to be in front of a camera. And maybe that negotiation might start by text message, but it might jump right to the camera. I want to see you. So we have to think about what are we wearing? Do, do we look like an approachable person? Or are we wearing something that wouldn't be approachable, even a uniform maybe? Uh, the uh, importance of body language and uh, micro expressions and gestures. These are advanced communication techniques that not only do we need to be able to understand, but we need to be able to convey that. How do I look believable? How do I, is there something inconsistent here that I'm sharing with you that is giving you that hesitation? And I believe strongly in your, in in your very beginning food and drink, because you think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs (laughs) and right at the, right at the bottom, we're we're not working on someone's self-actualization at this point, but do they have something to eat? Are, Are my needs being taken care of? And my wife will tell you, if Scott is grumpy, get him some tacos right away and all your problems are going to be fixed. He'll be much better in five minutes. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. Um, something you were saying about the, um, the setup and the, oh, I, I, I forgot what I wanted to say. How, um, it's not coming back to me. So it sounds like we're very aligned with the importance of reinforcement and helping people to be ready. Oh, it was about the micro expressions. I remember. Um, So one of the things that I work on with people is their eyebrows get stuck up at the top of their head and they look very intense or stressed. And people are like, what are you talking about? My eyebrows are fine. I don't, they're like, I'm like, no, okay, just, you know, have a minute, look in the mirror, see what I, you know, and they're like, oh, I see what you're talking about. So I literally will have someone put scotch tape on their forehead when the forehead is relaxed. And then I say, go call somebody who makes you crazy <laughs> or, or go, you know, call the Apple helpline or something. <laughs> and then it'll start triggering those emotions and then they can start to feel their eyebrows. And then their next step is to start to control the eyebrows. So I imagine when you're working with a hostage negotiator, they got to be able to control, like you said, those micro uh, 
um, not what do we call them? Not micro micro. Just our, our gestures, the micro expressions. Expressions, micro ex- yeah. micro expressions, and that one is not even so micro. That's sort of a major one. Um, so that's how I get my coaches to control. This is a little piece of scotch tape to train the eyebrows to feel it, and then on you know like training wheels, you can take your scotch tape off and at some point and start to control it on your own. Right. And I've had an expert argue with me that, that said, you know what, most people can't even see these micro expressions. And I like what you said. Well, let's just start <laughs> with regular expressions. If you're not paying attention to the person, you are missing great information. I remember being at the Harvard program on negotiation and my negotiation partner, we were doing an exercise. She offered me millions of dollars more than I would have been willing you know, to, to pay or accept. She, she offered me way high, more than I was expecting. And I remember just cracking a huge smile because I'm like a child. I, I have, you know, I, I love to smile and be happy. And she, she had looked off at another table and I, and I caught myself right away. I knew that she hadn't seen me smile. So I brought it back to a neutral expression and say, I, I can't deal with this. We're going to need a better offer here. I can't accept this at this point. And I got more. <laughs> and had she been paying attention, she would have immediately mm-hmm. realized oh, he is happy as can be. I overshot this significantly. How can I reel this back in? Um, but it comes down to, are we paying attention and where is your focus? Yes. Yeah. So Scott, um, another question I have for you. In what ways is police crisis negotiation useful for negotiators in other fields? I think that... Um, Hostage negotiator, and some people say, there are books out there that say, you know, you need to know how to be a hostage negotiator if you want to do this. And hostage negotiation is completely different from any negotiation that a regular normal person might be doing. You're going to be wanting to borrow a half a cup of sugar from the neighbor or something like that, or normal negotiations. But it's about, in, in crisis negotiation, it's about dealing with a person and connecting with an individual. So, I think that we're all people and reading the the chapters from your book, it reinforces that I'm not negotiating with Microsoft or Walmart. I'm negotiating with a person. Can I connect with the buyer who is in procurement, who is in sales? And can I connect with that? And we have to know that emotions drive our decision-making. Very rarely are we coming across a person who is straight. I am all logic and all reason. We have to appreciate how much emotion derives our decision-making and how we feel about it. And no one is going to remember a couple months from now for your listeners who are listening to this, they might not remember so much of what I said, but they will remember how they felt during their interaction with me in our session. And they may say, this person was very boring, he was very exciting, he was interesting, or somewhere in between. We'll always first remember our feeling in that experience with that individual. Then we'll get back to, can I remember specifics of what was said? So let's not disregard the importance of creating that positive emotion. And this goes to your framework, um, the last word I think you said was respect. And so one of my passions, I guess I would call it, is helping people to do two things, holding high respect for themselves and high respect for others simultaneously. Because let's say I'm not holding high respect for me and I'm only holding high respect for you. 
Well, the respect I'm showing you actually has less value. You're going to be less interested. It's when I hold high respect for me and high respect for you, then suddenly you're like, oh, okay, I'm feeling really good about the respect that Amy's showing me. So that to me, it really speaks to that emotional thing, creating positive emotions where the other person um, is feeling valued. And you got to do that through holding value for yourself also, which is seems surprising, I think, for some people. I think most professionals are almost dismissive of this part. They say, I get it. I already know that, you know, yes, sir, no, ma'am, all this. I don't really need to pay attention to this because I have it figured out. And I just kind of challenge them to go through, take the opposite of that. Instead of feeling respected, let's talk about disrespect. The last time you experienced a disrespectful person or situation, did you go through a process of saying, okay, I'm giving thought to who I'm talking to and how they said it and what the context was and what's the history of our relationship and what's the broader situation and what do they mean going forward by this? Is that the analysis that I conducted or was it boom, immediate? I felt it. I, I heard you say that and I just felt disrespected. It's about emotion. And can we move away from that immediate reaction, that system one thinking, boom, I need to respond right away because I felt hurt. So now I need to get back at you and move into a more thoughtful analysis. And the fourth point of respect goes right back into the understanding piece that, you know what, maybe you didn't realize it. And I believe that most people, when they were disrespected, it wasn't intended. Now, there's mm-hmm. plenty of intentional disrespectors True. out there who want to cause trouble and news channels who need to sell to their base. No problem. I get that. But real interactions, when I'm disrespected, I have the mindset that most of the time, this person didn't mean to do that. Yeah. So it's okay to go back and say, you know, when you said that thing, I felt hurt. Um, could you tell me more about that? So I'm wow. coming from an understanding position. Hey, help me understand. And it goes back to what you're speaking about of saving face. I'm not accusing you of right. hurting me. I'm not trying to put you in a position where you have to feel defensive. I'm right. sharing that I message. I feel hurt when you say that because, you know, whatever the situation is. And that's one of the skills of active listening. Now I, I put it back to you to say, you know what? I felt hurt by that. You know what? I didn't mean to. Um, say that this is what I meant by that. And now we're having that deep dialogue right? going around that circle. And I, I, I fully believe these are the four most important principles to negotiation and crisis communication and connection. Beautiful. This is the way to do it. And so what I'm hearing is uh, at the beginning of that, you had something called positive intent. You had a, made this positive assumption that it wasn't my intention to hurt you. Then you had self-awareness to realize the impact it had on you. Ouch, I felt hurt. Then you had the courage to share it because we don't, you know, because the person, even if you do it in the best way possible, I could accidentally take it uh, defensively, except you do it in a calm, gentle, and direct way. And then I get to say, oh, well, yeah, I guess I was upset too. And, you know, either admit, yeah, you know, I intended to, or, oh my gosh, no, it wasn't my intention. And so now we've had a delicate conversation that has ironically maybe cemented the rapport and the relationship even more. Yeah. Cool. And 
and and that's that's the way to go and that's a hallmark of a very mature communicator yeah. and if you did that with me i would say this is a person that i want to work with a yeah. person i want to connect with because we're doing it at a very high level and that's to me and uh, and then i'm going to ask you for your call for action in a second that to me is an indication of um like you said, a very high level and uh, an, or not an example of how conflict can lead to um, an even stronger rapport. Okay, Scott, in 30 seconds, what is a call for action you have for listeners? Sure. We are going through a difficult time in the history of our country, in the history of the world. So let's be thoughtful of each other. I want your listeners to go out and find one person, a family member, a friend, and be a great listener. Have your next interaction be about them. It's not about you. Connect with them, and you are going to unlock a door that's going to be a a terrific, terrific relationship builder for each of you. Beautiful. That's a great, strong call for action and clear and challenging for people. So for me, um, my first call for action for listeners is check out Scott's TEDx talk. Remember, the title is called The Secrets of Hostage Negotiators. My second call for action is to send me your communication conundrums, clashes, challenges, mishaps, blunders, and successes via email or through my social media. And I will read them and discuss them on future shows and make suggestions. And my email is amy at carolcoaching.com. That's two R's and two L's. Now, if you want to reach out to Scott, remember, you can find him on his website, scotttillema.com or negotiationscollective.com or check him out on bigspeak.com. And you can also find him on LinkedIn. Now, that's Scott, S-C-O-T-T and Tillema, T-I-L-L-E-M-A. Now, listeners, be sure to switch on, tune in, listen up, and be inspired next week when I'll be speaking with Lisa Winnicka, who is a connector, speaker, author, truth seeker, and host of The Good News Guide. It's a podcast and YouTube channel. We're going to be talking about leading from within, leading yourself, leading your team, leading your vision to create the life you have come here to live. And if you're ready to take your superhero partner powers to the next decade, join me for my online leadership presence course. You can check it out on my website, carolcoaching.com, or my, any of my social media channels, Amy Carol Coaching. Now, if you're game for more, I'm going to be hopping over to Facebook Live five minutes past the hour for a short chat on today's show. Scott, thank you. It has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you, Amy. And thank you, listeners. You've been listening to Partner Up with Amy Carroll on the Voice America Business Channel. Happy partnering, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Partner Up with Amy Carroll. Join Amy for another edition next Friday at 7 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until we speak again, make it a great week. And remember, make your partner look good. Good.